0: I want to read to you a passage from the Bible. It's in your outline notes if you've got them. They are on the sheet. And we're going to go straight into it. I'm going to read it from the message paraphrase of the Bible. uh, And then we'll go straight in. This is from Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. Every year, Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up as they always did for the feast. One version says, as was their custom. If you're in a connect group, a small group in the week, one of the questions that I've given you is, what are some of the customs that are good to do? What are those festivals maybe that were meant to celebrate? They went up for a feast. When it was over and they left for home, the child Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents didn't know it. Thinking he was somewhere in the company of pilgrims, they journeyed for a whole day and then began looking for him among relatives and neighbours. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him. The next day, they found him in the temple, seated among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. The teachers were all quite taken with him, impressed. With the sharpness of his answers. But his parents were not impressed. They were upset and hurt. And his mother said, young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds looking for you. He said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be here dealing with the things of my father? But they had no idea what he was talking about. So he went back to Nazareth with them and lived obediently with them. His mother held these things dearly, deep within herself. And Jesus matured, growing up in both body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. It's been my observation over many years now of church leadership and looking at other churches that the busiest time in the calendar, in the church calendar is this one we're in the midst of now. Starting in September through to December, it's the busiest time. And that's true for us here at C3. In my 22, 23 years now, the busiest season is always between September and December. We've had a a very full diary thus far, and so it remains until Christmas. In case you didn't know, 55 more sleeps to Christmas. What's at least seven of you that are excited by that. 55 more sleeps to Christmas. Now, I don't have a, a problem with it being busy. As long as we're busy about the right things. I know churches can be over busy and we have to watch that. There's an old poem that goes about like this. It says, Mary had a little lamb was given her to keep and then she joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. So, so there can be an over-business, but there's a right busyness. One of, of Jesus' closest disciples, John, one who'd been intimate with him, who'd walked and talked with him for over three years, this is what he wrote at the end of his gospel, the gospel of John. He said, there are many more things that Jesus did And if all of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself would have space for the books that would be written. In other words, it sounds like Jesus was busy. Now this passage that we just read together records the very first words of the child Jesus ...in the New Testament that are recorded for us. Doesn't mean it's his first words. The first recorded words of Jesus in the New Testament. And the first recorded words of Jesus are important for us to note. Because these words are going to frame the rest of his life. These words, in fact, are what frame the whole of the Gospels. This is what the life of Jesus was all about. He says this, and I'm going to read it to you. I read it from the message. I'm going to read it to you from the old authorized version. I like this. When Mary and Joseph had found him in the temple, these are what Je- this is what Jesus said to them. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? The story goes, the account goes, as was the custom, they went up to Jerusalem for Passover. They wouldn't have gone on their own. Many from the village would have gone. Extended family would have gone. This would have been a huge caravan of travellers that were going up to Jerusalem and then going back. At that time, the passage tells us, Jesus was only 12. His parents, not knowing that Jesus had stayed behind, after one day suddenly realize he's not with them. An entire day had gone by without them noticing Jesus wasn't with them. Now, parents in the room, if you hadn't spoken to your 12-year-old for a whole day, something would concern you, wouldn't it? They've gone a whole day on the journey to Jerusalem or back to their village and they hadn't noticed Jesus was with them. I would just like to say, if I don't get struck down by this, Joseph and Mary, that's negligent. You should, not have, no, you should have known where Jesus was. This is bad parenting. Can you imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph? I thought you had him. Uh, no, I saw you put him on the donkey right next to Auntie Deborah and you were the last one. You were too busy talking to your friends. And I'd like to suggest when they realized that Jesus wasn't with them, that there was some kind of tete-a-tete, should we say, that went on between them. You had him. No. I had no. it's your fault. No, it was my, No, you. Angie and I, my wife and I, went to Chicago last year, to the GLS actually, the Global Leadership Summit in Chicago. And we flew into Chicago airport, got off the plane, went through customs, and then we went for the car. Got to the desk to hire the car, and we needed a car to get from where we went every day to go. And I gave the lady my passport, told her my name, and then she said, can, can, you, give me your pass- uh, can you give me your driving license? As soon as she said that, It went through my mind, I haven't got it. That was my first thought. My second thought was, who can I blame? (laughs) Honestly? Well, there's only me and Angela, so guess what? I calmly turned to my wife and said, "Uh, have you got the passport? Have you got the driver's licenses? And there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And she just calmly said to me, you arranged this part of the journey. And we had a -a tete-a-tete. But the reality was, it was my fault. It was my fault. And I'd like to think that Mary and Joseph, they have an argument. Who's the last one with it? And then maybe they manage to get their emotions under control and say, hey, it doesn't matter whose fault it was. Where is he? And they have another journey back. Another day, they've been going a day. Can you imagine the panic that's in their heart? We've lost Jesus. And I'd like to suggest, this is what Dr. Luke, the author of this that we read, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke, the physician, who's very detailed, I'd like to suggest this is what Luke is trying to get over to us. These parents were only human. And these parents stuffed Up, And we're going to get a glimpse in the next few words that when they do find Jesus, there's something of a revelation, something of an aha moment of who Jesus is, that this is more than just a boy, that he is related to his father in heaven. And when he says to them, I must be about my father's business, I think Luke here is comparing and contrasting the difference between human frail parents And this is Jesus who says, I must be about my father's business. I just want to say this. I've said this many times here, but we need to hear it often. There is no such thing as a perfect parent. And even Joseph and Mary seem to blow it. There is no such thing as a perfect parent. Many of you know my personal story. My dad, because of illness, when I was growing up, had a number of inadequacies. If he was here, he's he's in heaven now, he'd tell you. I remember my dad going into hospital with a thrombosis, with uh, chronic breathing difficulties because he would had pneumonia when he was a child and he was left with asthma. He got better the older he got. He had his kidney out. He had his gallbladder out, he had his appendix out, and then he had lots of mental health, which is hardly surprising, perhaps, With all, there wasn't wasn't much left of him inside. And then he had mental health issues and was hospitalized with that. There were so many inadequacies of my dad when I was growing up. But I thank God, and Rhiannon said this brilliantly last week, that God put those around me, and by the way, my dad got better as he got older, and he lived till 87. I thank God put around me a man called Mr. Piper who taught me how to play table tennis. And I am so grateful. He bought me my first sponge bat. And any of you at the men's conference no, I can be Ben Cooley. It's just it was a bad day. But anyway, Mr. Piper, I remember a guy coming to our house every Sunday night, Mr. Cumstey. He used to come back with his wife, Marjorie, for crackers and cheese. (laughs) Marjorie Kumstey and Harold. Harold gave me a German bayonet. I sold that German bayonet when we were at Bible College to pay for some of our fees. But he told me a story about how he got it. I think he made the story up, actually. But it was, and I was, I had others around me that helped me in my growing. And parents, we need others around us. Don't get threatened by it because there is no such thing as a perfect parents we need others that will just come alongside and help them grow the only perfect father is god himself and the only perfect son is jesus we were laughing as a, a family when we were on holiday we were around the table discussing a time when we were in uganda and when we were in uganda uh, we were in a, a, a it wasn't a great hotel the walls were paper thin. The beds were rock hard. There was no uh, screens on the door or on the shower that, if it was ensuite, suite. And, and it was pretty rough. And the stairs were just concrete, no, no carpets or anything. And I remember our son, Josh, he was 16 at the time. He was messing about carrying his sister, Megum, who was seven at the time, up the stairs. I'm looking around. There's some of you that were there. And Josh fell... And we heard this most excruciating cry from Meg. And you know the cry, you hear some cries, they're just attention. Other cries, it's just a bit of an act. This one. Was wow, an excruciating, painful cry. So we ran out of the bedroom. Becky, our other daughter, was in the shower. We ran out of the bedroom, left the door open. Megan was on the stairs and she was crying because Josh had been holding her. He'd fallen and he'd fallen on her and she would really hurt her leg. And I picked her up, ran into the bedroom and he followed us. We put her on the bed and I, 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 I said, first thing I said to Josh was, You stupid boy! And my wife said, uh, I wasn't angry, by the way. I was vexed in spirit because I'm a pastor. But um, my wife said, shh, everyone can hear us. And I said, I don't care who can hear us. And then Becky's in the shower with no door on. And she says, dad, dad, everyone will come in. I don't care. You stupid boy, she may have broken her leg in Africa. I have a suspicion. I'm just telling you, I'm not a perfect parent. Oh, by the way, I I did say this, didn't I? There's no perfect parents. Like there are no perfect children. Just get that one clear. It's neither of us are. There's one perfect father and one perfect son. His name is Jesus. I have a suspicion. When they came and found Jesus in the temple... I don't think Mary said it like this, young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds looking for you. <laughs> Do you? I have a feeling she said, you stupid boy, young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds looking for you. Now some of you don't like to think of Mary like this, but I have a feeling she was too, vexed to spirit. Have you ever lost a child? I remember Becky, our, our, our eldest daughter, we lost her not long after we'd moved to Cambridge in Ely. And the panic, have you ever felt that? The panic, looking around for her and then we found her on the other side. Guess what, we're so relieved to see her. We so loved her and wanted her with us. She was two, I think, two or three. Of course we went up to her and said, you stupid girl, keep hold of my hands. And then we hugged her and loved her and kissed her because we panicked. I have a feeling these guys panic because they're not perfect parents. And neither are you. So chill out and stop trying to be perfect. And those mistakes that you've made me too. Thank God for the grace of God and thank God for others around that somehow fill the gaps for us. Son, why have you done this to us? Three days. These human parents. You know, what? it doesn't tell us how Joseph responded. I wonder how he responded when he heard Jesus say, I must be about my father's business. You see, he wasn't talking about his natural father. His natural father was a joiner, a, a carpenter, a chippy. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm here at the temple. There's just a bit of a job broken out and I just need to get about my father's business. There's an altar I need to repair. He wasn't talking about Joseph. He was talking about his good, good father. I must be, and by the way, the phrase that he uses, they never, they never knew anyone calling God my father. This is intimate. This is close. I must be about my father. Father's business. What it does tell us though is that Mary hid these things in her heart. She held them inside. And I wonder, I wonder, when it came to the day when she stood at the the base of the cross, when her son is being tortured and is in excruciating pain and she hears him cry out, Father, oh, Father again? Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. I wonder if she remembered the first time when she'd lost him and she'd hidden this in her heart and now she sees him on the cross and he's crying to that same father again. Father. Ah, he must be about his father's business. And being about his father's business includes Death but he must obey his father. She hid them in her heart. I wonder if this thought went through her mind. I must remember, he was God's before he was ever mine. You hear that? He was God's before he was ever mine. And I want to ask you a question today. Because I think Jesus understood this, and I think Mary understood this eventually, no, not on this occasion. She knew eventually Jesus didn't belong to her, his father. And here's my question that's in your notes that I want to ask you Do you know to whom you belong? Do you know to whom you belong? I would like to suggest that no human should ever own another human being except the one who has paid a price to redeem you, to bring you back, to be the bridge, to enable you to relate to God the Father. No other human being should own you. Your company should not own you. Parents, you do not own your children. We are owned by one and only the one who's paid the price. His name is Jesus. To whom do you belong? It affects everything. The one to whom you belong is the one to whom you must pledge allegiance and the one whose business this life is all about, the one in the, who you should, his business is whom you should engage with. You're not your own. You don't control your own destiny. Do you belong to him? Do you know to whom you belong? 1 Corinthians seven twenty three says this. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. As I'm preparing this in my office, an old hymn came to me, which we're never going to sing here. But I'm going to sing a, a verse of it and the chorus to you. It goes like this, really old. Jesus, my Lord, will... Love me forever, from him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me not for the years of time alone but for eternity i belong to jesus to whom do you belong my mom 92, really, really struggling. Gets her conversation at night mixed up. Gets the card she sends mixed up. Forgets my wife's name these days and she's known her for longer than I have. But when we talk at night about the grace of God and about God's love and God's keeping, she's as clear as a bell. She knows. and I don't know whether she'll Go in the next three months or the next 12 months or whatever. I know. She knows. To whom she belongs. And therefore, her eternal state is secure. We have the greatest message on the face of God's earth. We should live for no other purpose, guys, than Father's business. Father's business. I must be about my Father's business. Megan, who was leading worship here this morning, this applies to all of us. Can I just say it again? I feel to come back to us this. Our children don't belong to us. Let them go so as that we're releasing them into the hands of God. I don't want my daughter, where is she? Is she not in? I don't want her to go to Australia in January. Period. She's 18. She shouldn't be leaving home until she's 35. I don't want her to go. If I start to think about it too much, when I went, Angie and I, we just start crying. To be honest with you. Are you a big softie? Absolutely. I'm a big softie. You want to argue with me? I'll butt you. So, it, it, of course we're big softies. But I know this. She doesn't belong to us. I'd rather be saying to her, don't you dare go to Australia. Stay at home. But that's not the will of God for her life. Because there's a cry of a father's business over her. And that's the same for all of us. To whom do you belong? Your company doesn't own you. We belong to Jesus. The Father's business is both specific and general. And I want to just finish, and it's a long ending, so don't get your hopes up too much. I want to finish talking about the general and the specific business of God. The general is in this way. There's God's great, big, eternal, fat story, a cosmic plan and purpose. And then there's this small, unique fit that was shaped for me and you, so we play our part in the great, eternal plan of God. I'll put a quote in your notes here. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any How? I found, I I, I was drawn to the attention of this with a number of pop-ups that come up when I'm on the internet. And I was looking at these pop-ups as they come up. They're advertising. And lots of them have to do with how. How to make money. How to start a business. How to lose weight. There was even one about how to put weight on. How to be happy. How to get a house. How to get a partner. How to leave a partner. How to raise a kid. If you go to the how-to Section in, in bookstores full of how to's. I was looking at them thinking, but none of them tell me why. No pop up came up and said, Why do you do what you do? No ad said, Why do you work such long hours? No ad said, Why do you work so hard? And I want us to be clear as a church and individually that the why is so big. The why to live for is so big that when we get bored of the how, because they get boring, that the why is big enough to keep us when the how has lost its attention. Our attention. There's a story in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is walking along. It's like he's just walking along along the side of Galilee. And he sees two brothers, one called Simon and one called Andrew. And they're casting a net, it says, into the lake, for they were fishermen. They'd always been fishermen. Their grandfathers were fishermen. Their fathers were fishermen. They're fishermen. This is what we do. And Jesus sees them, and this is what he says in Matthew 4, verse 19. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and then he adds this, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 20 says, At once they left their nets and followed him. This is the great invitation to the human race follow me. He says it to fishermen. If these had been doctors, he'd have said, Guys, you've been changing the physical. I want you to come and follow me. We'll change hearts. He might have said, If there'd have been computer operators, come, you've been on computers, come on, we'll put a new operating system inside people. If these had been cobblers, he might have said, you've been working on souls, come on, we'll go and change souls. Something that he would have said and applied it to their life. This is the great cause for which we live for. Come and follow me. John Altberg suggests this about following Jesus. He says, Jesus says, follow me and you will know God. You'll be undone by grace. Have you been undone by grace? You'll be healed by mercy. You'll be captured by a vision of eternity. You'll have a hope stronger than death. You'll feed the hungry and love the lonely and serve the forgotten. With God's power, you will change history one life at a time. Follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. I love the way it says, they left their nets. This was their security. This is all they knew, fishing. What is your security? What are you clinging on to that's your net? I've got to have this, keeps me safe. I felt, I woke up in the night, and I'm going to say this in every service, I felt there'd be someone here today, and you've got a very rich uncle, and you need to speak to your very rich uncle, and you need to ask him, would he sponsor you to work for the church? We're not going to ask you to work for us. You're going to ask your uncle. I don't know who you are. It just came to me in a flash in the night. Go and ask him. Say, will you sponsor me to work for my church for one year, two years? You choose a time scale. Make it 25 if you like. We're not going to invite you to do a contract as in employ you, but we'll invite you if you come on to do a contract as an employee, but we're not going to pay you. Your uncle's going to pay you. Go and ask him. Leave your net of security right now and ask him. There are people in this church, there's a guy in the church here, I'm not gonna embarrass him. But he took a demotion, he took it in his job, so as that he had some flexibility to work less hours as well, because he couldn't have got the he couldn't have done the less hours by staying in the same position. And then he took four days instead of five, or I think it's three and a half even. And then he's offered one day to us at the church, free of charge, just to work. To help widows and the poor and those that are disadvantaged. He's taken less money to live on in order to fulfill a call of God on his life that says, follow me. Now, we're not all called to that. There are others that are doing less hours of work. But I want to put the challenge out there to you. Maybe some of you need to do that. Maybe some of you need to reorientate your lives so that you put aside the nets of your security and you hear the cry, Follow me. I know this sounds crazy, but I believe this. I believe we can change the world. I do. I believe we can change the world. If we're here today talking about 12 disciples that did it, who were terrified and locked themselves in a room, there's more than 12 of us, and the world's been changed by those 12, we can change the world. When I was a kid, I I used to love superheroes, still do. In fact, my mum, one thing she can do at the moment is she she sorts out photographs. Spends a lot of time just sorting out photographs. And then she sends them to us. She sends them to me of me as a child in a cowboy outfit. Because the superhero when I was a kid was the Lone Ranger. I know things have moved on. And I'm in this, I've got this cowboy outfit. I've got my, my guns by me. And, and I'm in these, these leather trousers that my mom had made. Josh, our son, used to do the same when he was a kid. We had the Thunderbirds. We had Captain Scarlet, Spider-Man. I think we had a Batman one as well. And he doesn't do it anymore, you would be glad to know. But he did then, he dressed up. They were world changers. They were, one of the guys that I remember, one of the TV series that I used to watch was The Invisible Man. I think there was a movie a few years ago as well, a modern, more modern one about the, the invisible man. And there's a guy called J.D. Greer who's written a book called Gaining by Losing. And he writes about this show and it just caught my attention. He says on the Visible Invisible Man show, when someone wanted to make him visible, they would pour paint on him. Then you could see his shape and track his movements. He says, I suggest the local church is the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible to our community. In its fellowship, its holiness of life, its multicultural diversity, its selfless acts of love, and its forgiveness and boldness, it reveals the contours of the eternal heavenly Christ that dwells within us. When the local church equips their people to embody the gospel in the streets and in the workplace, they make the movements of an otherwise invisible Christ visible to their community. I like that. The building here is not the church. We are. Uh, We're highly visible in this building. But we're visible when we go into our world. We are the church. We have paint on us. And we make the invisible Christ visible. And we can change our world. It may be one person at a a, a time. But if you follow him, then you will be a world changer. See, he doesn't say to them. Really hear this now. He does not say to them, follow me and I'll save you he does I thought when I started to follow Jesus it was all about salvation he says follow me and I'll make you fishes of men I'll give you such a purpose that's going to rock your world follow me that's the general now for the specific did you notice when Jesus calls those disciples he calls them by name Peter, Andrew. In fact, if we had time, we could read the next passage where Jesus calls another two disciples and he names them. Names them. I'm going to show you a a comment by a, a, a guy who I see as a social commentator in our day. He is very sharp, intellectual, sees things very clear. And he's understood something about names and how important they are. Would you take a look at this about names?
1: Tell you what's really bugging me at the moment is people who have the same name that is spelled completely differently. I'm so sorry for all of you people, and I know there are many in this room tonight. It's such an odd, unnecessary waste of your life. Like Sarah, like Sarah with an H, or Sarah without an H. Sarah without an H is pronounced like this. Sarah, <laughs> and with an H. Sarah. <laughs> but Sarah has spent the whole of her life going, Sarah, with an H, with an H, that's with an H. Is that, sorry, is that with an H? No, there's no H. Sorry, there's an H. You put an H, there's no H, there's actually no H. What a waste of life. Like that. Stuart with a W is pronounced like this Stuart. Without a W, Stuart. What are we doing? It's not like it's, what's your name? Stuart. Stuart. And you are Stuart. Stuart. And this is my wife, Sarah. (gasps) Oh! Stuart. Stuart And Sarah. (gasps) (laughs) Stuart. This is Stuart. Come and meet the others. It's uh, Stephen and Steppen. Do say hello. (laughs) This is Stuart. 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 And Sarah. (gasps) Stephen and (laughs) Steppen. Oh, it isn't (laughs) Jeff and Geoff. Join the party! (laughs) Geoff, and your mind is Jill and Gill. Jeff, I forget who's with who. Jill is with Gioff and Jeff is with Jill. This is us Stuart, Stuart Steven, Steppen and Sarah. <sighs> oh, This, this is three Sean's. Sean. Joined the three Shawns. Do join the party, we've got Shaun, Sean, and Shaun. Come on in. Shaun, and Shaun. This is Stuart, Stuart, Steven, Steppen, Jeff, Geoff, Jill, Gill and Sarah. <sighs> what a waste of life.
0: He doesn't care how you spell your name, but he knows your name. He knows your name. And the unique part that you and I have to play has been set apart. He prepared good works in advance for you. What's your name? The blank in your note is your name. What's your name? I've got two daughters, and I sometimes do get them mixed up. So Megan sometimes becomes Began because our other daughter's Becky, and Becky sometimes becomes Mecki. God never gets your name mixed up. I was speaking at Bradford, and the pastor's name there is Steve Gamble. I told him afterwards that a friend of mine, Jeff Lucas, was on the phone to a festival he was speaking at, and the, he asked who the other speaker was. And the guy on the phone said Steve Gamble, but Jeff Lucas thought he said Steve Campbell. So Jeff Lucas said, "I'll go and pick him up. He's a mate. I go, and p- where is he?" And so Jeff goes to pick up me at the airport in Gatwick, walks in, and he's looking around for me, and then he sees this guy walking towards him, and this guy puts his hand out and says, Are "You, Jeff Lucas?" And Jeff says, "Steve," and he says, "Yeah." Jeff to this day or to that day hadn't told him that he thought he was picking me up but he was picking up Steve Gamble He'd picking up a guy called Steve Gamble God never gets you mixed up he knows your name and he has a part for you to play and when he calls you he calls you specifically come follow me and I will make you fishes.